Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got the former editor of Labourist Peter Edwards and the author Joanna Williams. Good evening to both of you. Um, as I mentioned previously, we used to do three panellists. We're now doing two to see how it works. You can always let me know your thoughts uh, on that. Do you like two panellists? Do you like three panellists? It's a conversation that gets you all going. And I also uh, want your thoughts on all of the topics that we will be discussing tonight. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of the programme, coming up for you, we've got uh, borders. I mean, it makes me laugh because I was about to say borders and getting tough with them. It makes me laugh because, let's face it, we're not that tough at all, actually, are we? Uh, we've got an immigration special coming up tomorrow where we're going to look uh, exclusively at, you know, how do we get uh, the immigration system in this country working? But for tonight, I'll be focusing on uh, the question about whether or not you think that people coming to the UK should have to be subject to criminal record checks before they're allowed into the country. I also want to talk to you about cancel culture, looking at J.K. Rowling's Quidditch as an example, and Edinburgh University, and also drug-taking. If you are someone that does indeed take drugs and you have three strikes, uh, you're caught three times, should you lose your passport and your driving licence? Uh, I've got to say, that seems very strange to me. Uh, but I've wanted to get into that story for a little a little while, at least uh, at the start of this week. So I'm pleased to be doing it with you tonight. Um, lots of you are in touch already. Tony says, the whole debate about criminal record checks is pointless because we have so many people coming to this country already via the channel. Uh, we don't know who's here and who's not. Um, John says, all of this is a bit of a joke, Michelle, because you're trying to police properly the borders at things like airports when the border in the channel is completely disregarded. That is a sentiment that is coming through thick and fast on the email. And as I already said, um, we'll be doing a special looking at immigration more generally and also at the crisis uh, that is going on in the channel. And that will be six o'clock tomorrow night. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me as well, email gbviews at gbnews.uk. If you don't already have it, you can tweet me as well at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. But let's look then, shall we, at these new plans the Home Office has unveiled, uh, their, their ideas for criminal checks for all travellers who want to come to the UK. It's called uh, the Electronic Travel Associa Association Authorisation, the ETA is what we're talking about. If you've ever been to the States, I guess it'll be a bit similar to what they do there. You'd have to submit your biometric details, your contact details, against, uh, amongst other things, and all of this will basically be automatically checked against watch lists, criminal databases, et cetera, et cetera, before it is determined whether or not you'll be allowed in. Uh, and be warned, if you're someone that, I don't know, has got a long criminal record or anything like that, you're more than likely going to have a no. Hmm? Joanna Williams, what do you reckon? Do you think uh, having a criminal record, et cetera, should stop you from coming and visiting the UK? I mean, under some circumstances, obviously, if you were charged with shoplifting when you were 14, that shouldn't be a life sentence against ever being able to come to um, visit people in the UK. Uh, but for, for certain serious crimes, yes, I do. I think we should have the right to, as a, as a sovereign nation, we should have the right to be able to decide who can and who can't uh, come into our country. 
I, th I do think we'd be a bit naive, though, to think that it's going to automatically make the UK a safer place, and not just because, as some of your um, respondents have been pointing out, that, that it doesn't do say anything about illegal immigration, um, but also when you look at most of the major terrorist attacks, uh, crimes, very, very serious crimes that have been committed in this country, it's often, I hate to say, UK citizens... Homegrown. Homegrown problems, exactly. And, and it's not the case that we're having a major threat by people coming here specifically to commit crimes, thank goodness. Um, but, but, like I say, I do think we've got the right as a, as a nation-state uh, to control our own borders. Um, so, just to give you some more uh, background on this, you'd have to pay for this, by the way. So, it's not a, a free privilege at all. You'd have to pay. We're looking at... It's, this is not coming in anytime soon. Uh, I think next year is when we're looking at it. And this is part of a broader uh, border control piece, which we'll come on to in a second, but specifically on this question about do you think you should have criminal record uh, checks done before you're allowed in as a visitor? Where do you stand on that, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with a criminal record check. And as Joanna says, you, you would distinguish between... Uh, you know, a kid that broke a window when they were 14 and someone convicted of a sex crime. I think what, what I understand from this story is there's a bit of a, a merging of, I think, safe travel, which will, is what we all want. We all know once you're in the air, you're vulnerable, and then terrorism in any particular country. And sometimes th those are, are different things. And I'm a bit wary about um, Preeti Patel announcements when they're talking about getting tough. There was one on your headlines earlier that was slightly different about the small boats crisis. And, you know, we've been told repeatedly the Home Office area is getting tough, but I, I wrote down the word used by the independent chief inspector, who, who's not a party political person like me, who, who said it was ineffective. So I think even if one supports the Home Office, and there'll be a massive debate about that, can the Home Office under Preeti Patel deliver? And I want to finish by making one final point. Um, this is like the ESTA system going to the S, where airline companies will be doing the checks on behalf of, essentially, the state. But, you know, six years ago, Preeti Patel said taking back control. Actually, taking back control now, it seems, means outsourcing the job to Ryanair. Mm. I mean, who? good luck with anything, quite frankly, if it's been outsourced to Ryanair. <laughs> I won't fancy anyone's <laughs> chances with that. Um, Joanna, this is part of kind of... Um, a broader shake-up, if you will, in terms of how borders flow and all the rest of it. And it is a little bit laughable because, you know, my view is the writing in already. Um, it's all well and good talking about what you're going to do at an airport border. But when you have literally got thousands of people who, more often than not, you don't even know who they are, uh, getting picked up in the channel, brought in, it kind of undermines what you're trying to do on the official channels. Um, and some are suggesting that, actually, she's trying to... Pretty, being she, is trying to divert the attention away from what's going on in the channel. Um, and this is all about kind of headline-grabbing because, really, they don't even know what to do to get a handle on what is going on in the channel. Do you think that's unfair criticism? Is this just a distraction technique? Or do you think she genuinely wants to get a hold of uh, movement through um, airports? I actually think both are probably true. I think it probably is a useful distraction technique um, and it, it turns our attention away from what's going on in the channel and turns our attention away from the problem of illegal immigration. But at the same time, I think it's probably genuinely meant as well. I think it, it probably, Priti Patel probably does want to um, have more power to work out who's coming into the country legally. But I have to say, for all I said earlier, that I think it, it's 
important and we do have a right to control who does and does not come into this country. Just on Peter's point about Ryanair and the state kind of handing out control uh, powers in this way, you know, I think that's a very, very good point and an important point. And it, I have to say it does bother me because it does seem that increasingly we're living in a, a kind of surveillance society. And it does worry me a little bit that all our movements are kind of tracked to some extent, and there is something nice about the freedom. Maybe I'm just being a bit romantic here or a bit, bit kind of naive myself, but, but about the freedom to be able to travel around and, and come and go without people having lists and knowing and monitoring your movements. I mean, even just silly things like um, paying on your debit card contactless, it does mean that the state has unprecedented powers, really, with your banking cards, with your mobile phone, and now potentially um, with these immigration checks as well, extra immigration checks at borders, to know where we all are at any point in time. And there is a little bit of me that is a bit worried about that. Well, you hit on an important uh, and interesting point because, as I was explaining, this uh, criminal record checks, whatever, it's part of a broader strategy. Uh, and one of the elements of this strategy is saying here that uh, looking forward, uh, what we want to have is a seamless, fully digital end-to-end -end journey for customers interacting with the immigration system by 2025. Uh, so basically, what they're suggesting here is a digital system. So for all of these processes to be digitised, uh, this would include e-visas and aims to replace physical and paper-based products by enabling people to use their smartphone, to provide facial biometrics to establish or verify their identity, and to enable reuse of fingerprint biometrics that have previously been captured. So this kind of digital border that people are talking about potentially being trialled uh, coming in, 20, uh, in 2025, some people might think this is great. Um, it's all convenient. I've got my phone, off I go. Other people might think, hang on just a nanosecond. Who is collecting all this data? What are you going to be doing with it? And what are the unintended consequences of this. Where do you stand on this whole digitization of pretty much everything, quite frankly, but specifically on this? I think there's two concerns. I mean, digitization, we hope, you know, in all areas of public life, particularly the health service, can make our lives easier. But obviously, there's two concerns. One is how much information we hand over. And actually, I, I don't make every um, transaction on a debit card because I don't want my bank managers know everything about my life. You know, I still use cash quite a bit, oh, which I know Peter, is... Oh, you've got me wondering what you're up to now that <laughs> you don't want people to, to know about. Uh, I, that plants some strange thoughts well, in more, It's more chocolate biscuits and cake ingredients. But, <laughs> um, think, you know, think about who, who knows the most about your life. It's your, it's your spouse, if you have one, your GP, and perhaps your bank manager, because your bank statement tells you everything you've been up to. But the other point, perhaps that wasn't meant as a joke, <laughs> but uh, joking aside, is about what, what happens when things goes wrong and technology does work 90% of the time. I don't want to be old fashioned about it, but technology goes wrong and you need human judgment to resolve that. And as soon as you said digitization, which has been a great force for good in many ways, but I did have that image in my mind of the supermarket self-checkout and when the problem and the alarm goes off and a sense of frustration or standing behind this chap uh, Paddington today as he was trying to scan his phone in place of his Oyster card to get through central London transport. And you need human beings to solve technology problems like that above and beyond the kind of big brother issue. Um, but you see this big bro brother issue, uh, ladies and gentlemen at home, do you get worried about this? This whole, maybe I'm uh, uh, reading, linking things in, 
But when you start talking about cashless societies, digital um, ID, you start talking about, in a minute, we're going to come on to, uh, you know, if you take drugs three times, you'll lose your passport, potentially lose your driving licence. I don't know, there's part of me that feels slightly uncomfortable uh, with this because I just think, what is the overall objective? Who's going to have this data? What are they going to actually do with it? Um, and why? What is driving this? Because is it uh, all about your convenience? Uh, and if you're an older person watching this and you're hearing things like cashless society and uh, centralised digital currencies, uh, all these kind of things, are you sitting there with your... Do you even have smartphones? Do you uh, feel like, yes, let's embrace this technology? Or do you wonder what's going to happen? Are you going to be potentially left behind? I'm interested on your thoughts on that one. Um, Alex says, you know, don't make me laugh. Can anybody believe that our pathetic, spineless, criminal-loving civil service would ever let anyone but criminals into this country? Hmm. I imagine that they uh, probably would, Alex, but maybe you know something that I don't. Uh, Paul says it's now easier to get into this country illegally than it would be to leave it legally on holiday. Um, Andrew says if these people in Burt's have no passports... Um, then, yeah, this is the same point that's coming through. The point is, what people are saying is, I think the sentiment that I'm getting from you guys at home is that all of this tinkering around the edges about who's coming in with a criminal record and who isn't is severely and significantly undermined when you have people in their hundreds uh, crossing the channel, often without identification, um, you know, going into hotels and then often not returning back to the hotels and no-one actually knowing what's going on and all the rest of it. I do think you've got a fair point there in terms of one does potentially undermine the other, doesn't it? Um, yes, I'm just looking through at many of your emails and it is pretty much that is the sentiment that is coming through. Um, just having a random conversation there in the break because one of my panel asked for a cup of tea uh, and I was just saying they could reuse my tea bag and I got some strange looks uh, and I was just pondering, well, I was actually asking you, wasn't I, Peter, if you're going to make two cups of tea, do you use two tea bags or the same tea bag? And you were saying, do I use a teapot? I, I would use a teapot and it tastes a bit better out of a teapot and if you've got an eye on economics, you get several cups out of two bags. Yeah, see, I would never use one cup, one bag. Um, sometimes I might even stretch one tea bag out to three cups. Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, you tell me if you want to tell, if you want to share your tea bag stories with me, you tell me. Um, are you someone that's you know? Do you just go for it? One tea bag, one cup, or are you more like me? Get three out of one tea bag at gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email. I do like to get into all of these very, very important topics tonight, so tell me your thoughts. Uh, right, you know, where do you stand on the whole cancellation culture? Are you a fan of this? Do you think uh, in this day and age, if you do something wrong or if you say something wrong, that should be the end of you? Or are you a little bit more lenient? Are you someone that thinks if someone's done uh, wrong historically... Uh, that now, today, you should take the standards of today and look backwards into history and judge them uh, using modern-day standards and then give them consequences. Where do you stand on it all? Uh, the reason that I'm asking today is because, uh, of course, we've seen this influx, haven't we, of universities that are renaming campuses and buildings and rooms and halls or whatever uh, that are now changing their names because they don't like the association, perhaps, 
the people that they've named after were connected to the slave trade uh, or similar. And now Edinburgh University has renamed one of its components and has seen its donations fall by almost £2 million as a result. Uh, you actually, interestingly, Peter, you went to this university, didn't you? Yes, and I think this is a very un unwise move. Edinburgh University is a fantastic university, a fantastic place. I studied English literature in, in David Hume Tower, you know, on the 17th floor, whatever it was. Uh, this was 20 years ago, and then the, the name of the tower was not remarked upon, more perhaps a slightly brutalist architecture. But I'm slightly concerned about what Edinburgh have done. And, you know, I confess that I've not read um, David Hume's moral philosophy, but as I understand it, he was not a racial theorist. He wrote about other things. He wrote about values in society. This, this is not someone who, who spent their career churning out um, hate-filled books, and they never would have got a tower named after them had that been the case. This is someone who, as you in your intro said, you used the language of the time, and that's in, outdated, and the university acknowledged that it caused distress. But as we've seen with um, blue plaques and statues around uh, all parts of the UK, I'm not sure it really helps. I like the idea that you contextualise and clarify these things, because if you are... And there's a hell of a lot of David Hume stuff in Edinburgh, by the way. It's not just one tower. So there's a whole issue there for the kind of the city itself. But if you... If this is a cancellation, then each generation is assuming that it has perfect moral probity and there's no mistakes we're making in 2022 that our children and grandchildren will cringe at, and I'd never be that confident, because I'm sure that I've said things without any intent, but in 20 years' time would be highly disapproved of. So I think this is, um, this is going with the crowd a bit, but I think it, it's also um, misguided and in 20 years will be seen as such. Yeah, Joanna, I've got to say, I personally find all of this a little bit peculiar because this, people do seem quite desperate in 2022 to pick up something from, you know, goodness knows how many years ago, and say, look at that person, what a horrible individual, awful person, without even realising the stupidity of applying today's moral compass into yesteryear. There were completely different times. You know, life, society, value sets, whatever, have uh, more often than not rightly moved on. And you can't erase past, you can't erase history. And the thing that always makes me smile is that the people that are desperate, seemingly, to erase all these pasts and all the rest of it, they're more than happy, though, to keep the money. They're more than happy to keep the facilities that said person's money has bought them. They never seem desperate to hand that back to the people or the families uh, related to the person that gave them the money in the first place. Where are you on it all? Well, I think stupidity is absolutely the right word there, Michelle. I think you've completely hit the nail on the head. Um, and for a university, an academic institution, to be removing the name of one of the most significant philosophers, a real intellectual heavyweight of Scottish life, um, from their buildings, just shows complete ignorance, as far as I'm concerned. And, and it really worries me when universities are doing this, because you just think, what kind of messages are being sent out to students about intellectual thought, about actually engaging in debate, struggling and thinking and engaging with ideas that they might students might find challenging or, or even might just be perfectly acceptable in the historical context in which they were first raised? But, but for universities to be doing this, and obviously it's not just Hume, you know, we've, we've seen everybody 
from Shakespeare to Jane Austen to Charles Dickens, you know, they, they all seem to come along the line and get called into question and at very best have a trigger warning slapped on them. Um, but, but yeah, buildings and everything. One thing I'll just say on what Peter said, I'm, I'm slightly dubious about the core to contextualise. Um, you know, I think it's better than removing things. I mean, this isn't a big thing now to stick up a plaque alongside a statue or, or put a little kind of additional notice on something to, to highlight some of the problematic aspects. But, but my concern is that contextualising often just means pointing out the bad things that somebody did. So you take a historical figure like Captain Cook to pick someone at random and you just add in a sign to say all the, the negative or the bad things. And I think the message that sends to young people is that there was nothing positive about Britain's past. There was nothing to be gained from philosophers or authors or explorers. You know, the past was an unrelentingly negative place and all we can learn from it is, is how bad it was. And what do you think, Peter, to this whole, um, it's, it's a almost separate but linked, Quidditch, um, Harry Potter, um, we're in a situation now, and it's kind of about distance that I'm linking the two because you've got a situation where people are desperately trying to distance themselves to so the Quidditch uh, sport that was made a thing in Harry Potter. The associations uh, involved with that sport now are basically saying that they want to change the name to Quadball. Uh, their primary reason that they've given is that they want to distance themselves from uh, J.K. Rowling. Where do you stand on that? Well, and it, of course, J.K. Rowling wrote her books in Edinburgh, so it's another Edinburgh story, at, at least in its origins. Um, I think this is a bit daft. And I, I should say, first of all, I'd imagine most people that read J.K. Rowling's books uh, don't care what her view is on uh, the trans debate, and they judge the books on their literary merits and... I'm a bit worried that she gets um, lumped into other creative figures with controversial past. I'm like Richard Wagner, the composer, who wrote some things that were pretty repellent and on a sustained period. J.K. Rowling has not done that. And to my mind, J.K. Rowling is not transphobic. The, the Quidditch, Quidball society can do what they want. And we're all entitled to disagree with J.K. Rowling. But she expresses views that are lawful. Mm. They're not unlawful in a free society. And I think, again, it's short-termist, and in the case of the Quidditch Society, a bit daft and ungrateful to turn against the writer who gave them their sport on the basis of her views on the treatment of trans men and trans women, because they're not saying, we disagree with you. We're saying, we disagree with you, and your views shouldn't even be allowed. Mm -hmm. See, and I, I've got to say, just to be clear on what her views are, because I was desperately asking people today, please share with me what transphobic things has J.K. Rowling actually said, uh, because I genuinely wanted to see it and to understand it. Uh, the examples that I was provided with was just things that believe, says that she basically believes in biological sex being a thing. And, I mean, that is not transphobic in any way, shape or form. So the whole thing's peculiar to me. Um, Joanna, where do you stand? Well, I think the word, can or the phrase, cancel culture, is almost too trivial to describe what J.K. Rowling's going through or has, has been through. I mean, the, the vilification that's used against this one woman is really off the scale. I mean, she's talked about having had, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, uh, so many death threats, she could wallpaper her house 
um, with the death threats that she's received. It just seems that she's in the news every single week, be it um, Disney or the, the Quidditch Society or whatever, a new group of people feeling the need to take a pop at JK Rowling. It's really disturbing and, and bizarre. And just to tie this in with what I was saying earlier about the way young people are only presented with negative things about the past, I think one thing that's actually quite sad about J.K. Rowling's treatment is that, to me, she would be somebody who I would think of as an absolutely superb role model for young people, particularly girls growing up nowadays. I mean, she wrote the Harry Potter series of books when she was a single mother, by all accounts, um, sitting in cafes in Edinburgh. You know, she's, she's never played the victim in all this abuse that she's got. She's handled it coolly, calmly, rationally. You know, she makes her point. She's not afraid to stand up for herself and say controversial things and speak out. To me, I, I would, if I was a head teacher, I'd be naming schoolhouses and school classes, kind of rowling house and rowling class. And it, I don't know whether it's a peculiarly British disease, but we seem to just denigrate this woman who should be a heroine for thousands of children growing up nowadays. Well, last time I checked, that there was actually a plaque in the Elephant House Cafe in Edinburgh, where as a single mum, she wrote that first book that propelled her to stardom quite deservedly. So I, I hope that plaque is still there. Yeah, uh, Mike says the renaming of Quidditch is disgusting, as is uh, the abuse towards J.K. Rowling, especially by those actors and actresses who have made millions through her. You couldn't make it up. Uh, Nick says if people don't like the association, uh, association uh, with J.K. Rowling, they might as well just rename Harry Potter. But you see, Jim says J.K. Rowling is just simply quoting medical facts about women good on hair. Uh, this is all completely ridiculous, says Sue. If it wasn't for JK and her brilliant mind and her books, there wouldn't even be that game available. But briefly, but my point is it's not about whether she's right or wrong. It's like she's allowed to have mm. a view. Mm, and people just want yeah. to shut her up completely. And that is unfair and it's Which undemocratic. I, th I think it's worth also asking the question, why do they go for JK Rowling so persistently? And it seems to me the reason, one of the reasons why they do is not just because of what she says, because there's quite a few other people who also make similar points, but precisely because she has reached the stage of financial independence. She is effective uncancellable and, and so they keep on going and going kind of determined to to rid her and yet they, they deep down they must know that they can't that that she is going to keep coming back from it but what's truly disturbing I think is not really the impact this has on JK Rowling herself like I said she's she's made her millions she doesn't need um, their affirmation um, but it sends a very worrying message to young people I think who, who are aware of what's going on in the news the message it sends to them is say what you really think speak out on controversial issues and you too could get death threats you too could suffer in this way and that's a re really worrying message to send to young people but too many people because I saw a cartoon and I tweeted it actually the other day and I thought it summed up this whole ridiculousness it was uh, a lady being burnt at the stake, basically, and her executioner was... The scribble underneath was like, I agree with you. And it's this kind of mentality where, uh, when it comes to the trans debate often, I genuinely feel sorry for so many of the trans people. Uh, they want to live their lives, be left alone. They don't want all of these uh, conversations, debates. All. It's become a strange situation that, to me, is driven by activists. 
It's driven by organisations, many of whom are not even trans themselves, who deliberately and provocatively try to divide um, so that they can swoop in and capitalise and monetize that divide. I do, I think, that they try to deliberately separate people so that they can go to places like organisations and say, oh, look at all this hatred going on out there. Look at all of these problems. Oh, guess what? Here is my course. Look at this course that I can sell to you that you can give to your employees to make you all much better people. And I think there's whole industries that have been spawned uh, off the back of this. And I think that money is often at the heart of a lot of the activism, as opposed to genuine care and consideration. Uh, when it comes to Quidditch, by the way, as I said earlier on, if you're so desperate uh, to disassociate yourself, feel free to disassociate yourself with the person that created your sport. Stop playing your sport then. Go off, create your own sport, call it whatever you want, and away you go. Everybody's happy. But by keeping hold of the sport that's been created by someone, changing its name, to me, I find you deeply hypocritical. And there's also another component part to this, which is around trademarking. Uh, because Quidditch is, of course, uh, protected in certain ways. So the opportunity to monetize uh, Quidditch is somewhat restricted. So if you can break those shackles, you can call it something else, then kerching to you. So motives are not always what they seem. Alas, uh, by bringing in the trans conversation, there might well be some virtue signaling points that those associations can gain. You tell me, what do you think to all of that? Um, Patricia says, how sad. Um, we are a democracy. We all have views, opinions, uh, etc. But debate is now all closed down. Um, people need to grow uh, with debate. You must listen to other ideas. Everything is all one-sided now. And that's the point that you was making, Peter. People don't seem to be able to have a view and people just say, I disagree with you. What seems to happen is you can't have that view. You must be silenced. It must be stopped or else we'll come for you. And it's actually pretty dangerous, really. Well, very, very wrong. Joanna will know better than me, but as someone that studied English literature, the, uh, the hallmark of the censor is not the red pen. It's actually the words you didn't commit to paper in the first place because you're afraid of the social reaction. And there's a risk we go into that territory now. What I would also say is that there might, and I hope be, tens of thousands of trans people that read J.K. Rowling's books and don't really care what her view is, just like, I read, you know, modern fiction and I read newspapers and often don't pause to think about the intellectual backdrop of all the writers because life is too short. But this comes back to the point I'm making about the activists and the organisations that are desperate to whip up, divide, um, hatred, conflict, whatever you want to call it, so that they can then swoop in uh, with the solutions of which they charge readily for. You tell me what you think to all of that. Paul has been in touch saying, goodness me, Michelle, for the first time ever, I find myself in entire agreement with Peter. There you go, you've converted him. I don't know what you said, but he likes you, he's converted. He's never my agreed. staunch advocacy for using a teapot, perhaps, rather than <laughs> politics. Well, I can use a teapot, folks. I can tell you, uh, lots of you are getting in touch. Do you all still use teapots, by the way? Is it at home? Would you just, I don't know, would you use a teapot? I don't actually think I could be bothered. Uh, but lots of you are talking about tea bags. Uh, Arlene says, we use one tea bag in a teapot. Um, so, yes, teapots are still a thing. Um, <laughs> some people... Um, Someone just made me laugh, saying I need to be careful about having conversations about uh, tea bags. Uh, and I think I know where you're going with that one, but not for the tea time. 
Uh, Paul says, I always get three cups from one tea bag, but I'm also from Hull, so maybe it is just a whole thing. <laughs> maybe it is. Uh, Chris says, how on earth can you reuse a tea bag? Well, quite easily. You take it out, you put it on the side, you reboil your kettle a bit later on in the day, uh, or five minutes later if you're at work and you're trying to skive, and then you put your used thing in your cup, on goes the water, you wouldn't know any difference. That's what I say. Try it yourself when you're bored tonight. Let me know how you get on. Right, uh, should we talk about drugs? The government uh, is clamping down on recreational drug users. It's going to talk tough, it's got a new policy out there, uh, and now what it's basically saying is it's going to have a three strikes uh, and you're stuck rule. Uh, it's aimed basically, apparently, uh, at the middle classes, people are saying this one is. Um, users will get a fine for the first offence. If you're caught a second time, you'll be sent on a drug awareness course and get mandatory testing. And then the third time, basically, you could be charged and have your passport and your driving licence seized. These proposals will be subject to a 12-week public consultation. Uh, so that means we'll be allowed our thoughts on it. What are your thoughts on it? Joanna, good idea or not? Well, um, half good. <laughs> I'm pleased to half, hear. Which half? The passport or the driving licence? Uh, well, I think the half that's good is the cracking down on middle-class drug use. I'm not completely convinced about the way they're going about it, but I do think that middle-class drug use, you know, sitting around a dinner table in your nice Islington flat or whatever uh, and phoning someone to bring you a delivery of cocaine or something like that is, is all too often seen as a victimless crime and people think it's just a lifestyle choice. And it, it's not, you know, it, what's coming at the other end of that is gang violence, um, people actually losing their lives on the streets of London in less middle-class areas of London. You know, and it, it's seen as something which is just cool, just acceptable, we should all just be chilled out about it. But, but those people who are doing that are not the ones who are paying the consequences for it. And, and the consequences are other people growing up then with criminal records at best, losing their lives at worst. I guess the only thing I'm not sure about in all of this is the kind of losing your driving licence. I, I mean, if something's against the law, it should just be against the law. You know, there should already be criminal sanctions in place to deal with it. I mean, I think we've said that, that middle-class drug use is, is, is fine and it's not illegal. Um, as far as I was aware, it actually is illegal and, and there should be penalties within the existing law rather than having to make up new things about being barred from a nightclub or stopped going to a restaurant or, or having your driving licence taken away from you. Peter, your thoughts? Well, it's another day and another talking tough announcements from Preeti Patel. But in fact, it's two talking tough announcements because we did one earlier on border checks. Mm -hmm. A cynic might say that some tough new announcements might have something to do with the cabinet reshuffle that is coming once the new prime minister is elected. So it does make you a bit sceptical about what Preeti Patel says. But of course, as Joanna indicated, the other point is taking drugs is already illegal. There are already sentencing powers for judges. We all know there's a big evil around the proceeds of whether that's, you know, heroin addiction or middle-class recreational drug crime going on to things that are truly awful like uh, people trafficking and child sex trade and so on and so on and so on. But what is the announcement here other than the Home Office is feeling a bit tough against people that break the law when it's already illegal, police already work on this every day and judges already have powers to sentence them. So I suspect there's not very much in this. 
It seems to me that what we've got here is really a cultural problem where you've got something which is against the law, but it's kind of for too long just being passively accepted. I mean, we all heard the stories not that long ago, didn't we, about Michael Gove and a number of politicians in Westminster uh, being involved in snorting cocaine themselves and journalists. You know, it's right. I mean, I have to say it's not the social circles I'm moving. Allegedly. 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 Look, I mean, there's no flies on me. I'm jumping straight in with the air word, getting myself out of trouble there. Uh, but what you allude to, uh, what was interesting, um, is that there was a, a Sunday Times report, actually, that what I found very interesting. Uh, looking back towards the end of last year, all but one of 12 toilet areas in Parliament uh, that were tested showed uh, traces of cocaine. So I would say to any MPs, anyone involved uh, going in and out of Parliament, you ought to really uh, be looking inwards, making sure that your own house is in order before you start trying to get your mitts on people's passports and driving licences. Uh, playing devil's advocate, Joanna, there's another side to this conversation, which would be, why don't you just make drugs legal, make cannabis, cocaine legal? Uh, you'd stop the trades, you'd stop these kids getting involved in gangs and dying and all the rest of it. What's your thoughts on that? Well, that's obviously another um, solution to this, and it would. I, I think you're right, that would be another way of looking at it. It would take away the black market that's currently rife in dealing drugs in this particular way. You know, again, it's just something I just feel a little bit uneasy about. I don't think there's anything brilliant about taking drugs. Um, I don't think it's something to celebrate. You know, I don't like all the trade in it. I don't like the criminality. I don't like the fact that it does lead to this violence. I'd like to see that stopped. And if decriminalising drugs or, or even making them legal stops that, then I definitely think that would be a good thing. But, but I do think it's a cultural problem that we've got. You know, why are politicians in Westminster then, allegedly, looking at that toilet survey, why aren't they concentrating on the job, what, doing what they're supposed to be there for. You know, they're not supposed to be there to be taking drugs and getting high. They're supposed to be there debating serious political ideas, as far as I'm concerned. Indeed. And, of course, just uh, to make sure, again, that I don't get sued, just pointing out that I'm not suggesting uh, it's the MPs that are taking cocaine in Parliament toilets. I'm simply pointing out uh, that... All but one of 12 toilet areas in Parliament was swabbed uh, for cocaine use. Uh, and, as I said, all but one of them showed positive uh, for traces of cocaine. So you, my dear friends, can make of that what you will. Peter, where do you stand on the whole kind of legalisation, decriminalising? Is that the answer to all of this? Just let people take what they want to take? Well, well, I must say briefly about Parliament, there's a lot of journalists and lobbyists that have passes to Parliament and use the lose. But going, but going on to decriminalisation, well, I'd say cars are legal and they're dangerous and there's a black market. Guns are legal and very dangerous and there's a black market. So if joints and coke and whatever else are legal, we shouldn't assume there won't be a black market for them as well, with all the grim crime and, of course, uh, tax avoidance, because that's one of the arg other arguments. You, it would be good for HMRC if drugs were legalised. It's nonsense. There'd still be a black market. There'd still be death, exploitation and misery. Why, though? So if you could go and buy your cocaine, I don't know, from... Uh, let's just say Boots the Chemist, I'm going to be silly. If you could buy it from Boots the Chemist, why would you need a black market to supply it, then? 
Well, I can only point to the fact there are black markets for things that yeah. are legal, like cars and cigarettes is perhaps uh, the most prominent one, and guns. So you, you can't um, demolish a black market by legalising I mean, something. Be because if something was legal, up. there'd also be a, a tax to avoid. But I mean, there's a huge black market in just regular cigarettes at the moment because mm. people can't afford to pay uh, the full price for them. And so there's a, a massive... Uh, trade in in either illegally imported or illegally manufactured cigarettes. So, I mean, I, th I think you're right. I think the illegal trade would, would not necessarily be at an end. It would, a lot of it would depend upon the pricing. You'd have to price legalised drugs at such a level that they uh, took any possibility of making a profit out of an illegal trade in drugs. But, I mean, that's well, obviously... You have to very... make them dirt cheap. Exactly, exactly. But that's obviously a very difficult thing to do. And, again, this is where you then create a real cultural problem. I mean, I, I personally, I don't want to live in a society where people are off their heads all the time or, you know, hi, I'd like to live in a society. Oh, clearly, you know, let people have fun and everything. I'm not saying complete puritanical killjoy, but... At the same time, recognise some of these drugs are, are not a positive thing for society. Well, you say that. Um, Martin's just emailed in and said, Michelle, you're talking about drugs. How many people uh, die and have their lives wrecked from alcohol? Um, someone else, Richard, has said, well, maybe what we need to do here is to ban booze. That is a gateway, he says to harder stuff. Steady on, Richard. Banning booze? Really? But that's been that tried in, in America in Prohibition. It was like the, uh, probably, in real terms, the biggest black market in human history. Yes, yeah, someone else actually just got in touch and said exactly that about Prohibition. Um, where do you stand on, on it all, though? Is the answer to simply say, you know what, we've lost the war on drugs, let's pause the war, make everything legal? Or are you someone that says, absolutely not? Uh, lots of you, uh, Bernard says, making drugs legal would not stop the effects of the problems that drugs cause. Um, someone else has been in touch saying about this whole thing seems to be about losing liberties. Should we be concerned about that? Um, nothing will work against the misuse apart from legalisation, says one of my viewers. Um, and Gillian says, Michelle, never mind three, we get four cups of tea out of one tea bag. Right, that's uh, my mission tonight. I'm going to go home and try and get four out of one. Uh, Peter, Joanna, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you at home for your company too. Have yourself a great evening. Uh, stretch those tea bags, everyone, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.